Welcome to the Cabin Culture Podcast, where we spend a little more time diving deeper into all the fun parts of cabin culture. We like to think of this as both the material and imagined expressions of how cabin lovers, dwellers, builders, and designers wish to live a more simple and authentic life. On this episode, we're talking to Melissa, the florist and creative mastermind behind the Tangle Bloom Cabin in Brookline, Vermont. Melissa originally bought the land for a flower farm, and after growing that business to include weddings and a CSA, she then added the Tangle Bloom Cabin. Originally, this small cabin was built by her husband in just a couple of weeks for the two of them, but launching it on Airbnb turned into an additional revenue stream she didn't see coming. Seven years later, it has grown not only in its popularity, earning the award of one of Airbnb's most wish-listed properties, but also in what it offers its guests. In this episode, we talk about how Melissa has found success in a niche market and how she has used guest feedback to improve not only the experience, but also the yearly revenue. All right, let's do this. So good to put a face to the cabin. I've been following you all for a while and it's nice to finally Uh, meet you. Yeah, same. Okay, can you? So good to be here. Yeah, can you start by giving folks um, an overview of who you are and where you're physically located? Yeah, so I'm Melissa Hesney Masters. I own Tangle Bloom and Tangle Bloom Tiny Cabin. So we are a, a small cut flower farm with a farm stay cabin, open air cabin on our property. And we are located in Vermont, in the sort of southeastern part of the state. We're about three and a half hours from New York City and two and a half hours from Boston. Amazing. I'm probably going to have to mute myself when I'm talking because they're doing, of course, yard work outside right now. They're, they're, um, they have leaf blowers everywhere. So I don't know if you can hear that. But I know. It's that time of, time of year. Always. I do video <laughs> production for a living. And I swear to God, every time we show up somewhere to film, it's like the once a month time that that neighborhood is getting like maintenance work done always. It's the worst. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now he has like a big machine that's like chopping it all up. Okay. (laughs) Well, I would love personally if you could take us back to the very beginning, because for you, it didn't necessarily start with like building a like buying a cabin to rent, building a cabin to rent. You have a very different origin story, which I'm excited to hear about. But first, let's just start with cabin culture in general, because that also started a while ago for you. What was your first introduction to cabin culture? So it was traveling and my husband and I, we lived in the Finger Lakes in Ithaca, New York, uh, before we moved to Vermont. And before we were married, we were, you know, just working really hard all the time and uh, had a lot of opposite schedules. And so whenever we could carve out time to like get away for a weekend, we would go to the Adirondacks and, you know, just look for like the coolest cabin that we could find. And we had really high expectations because our time off was so limited. And so we quickly learned a lot about hosting and, you know, people who did a really good job and then others who maybe didn't do such a great job. And then my next introduction was before we got married, I rented, I wanted to do this like little solo retreat. So I rented this off-grid cabin in the Finger Lakes Airbnb was brand new. I just heard about it. This was like 2010. And it was just an incredible experience. Like the host was just amazing. Everything was just perfect. And honestly, there are, you know, even today, like fast forward 10 years later or something. And, you know, there are a lot of places that still aren't as like 
dialed in and magical as that stay was. And it was really about the host and the the experience that she had curated. Can you tell me a little bit more about that experience? Like what was it? And and I honestly want to hear in general, mm-hmm. you have such a a lot of different places that you've gone. You've seen a lot of different things. And it sounds like you have strong opinions about what to do and what not to do. Let's start with her and that cabin. But then I also want to hear generally, I think that would be really helpful to hear like what always stands out to you or stood out to you. And what was like, I will never do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that cabin, it, you know, I was expecting something really rustic. It was, I think it was like $80 a night, you know? So I was expecting like, this is going to be really bare bones, but it was fine. I was used to, you know, camping and backpacking. So this was like totally a step up. This was going to be like cushy. Right. And when I got there, you know, yes, it was off grid. So there was no electricity, but there was some running water and like this little, just everything was so well laid out. Like you walked in and it was sort of like a little kitchenette. There was like this um, vintage enamel sink, like it was tiny, you know, but I, in the, you know, concrete countertop and um, out on the screened porch, she had sort of set up as both like kitchen slash living room slash there was also a clawfoot tub and it sounds really weird, but it just worked. So there was like a gas range out there and then a little like seating area. And then at the very end, there was um, a clawfoot tub and it was like nestled in the woods. You're above this ravine, just looking out at forest. And it was just, it was literally just magical. This sounds very similar to your place in the sense that like what's so unique about yours when I remember when I first found it on Instagram, it was just like, oh, you're like in the woods. Like you're actually taking away walls so that the forest is right there. Did some of that inspiration come from that stay? hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would still love to build like a replica of that place someday just for myself. Have you ever been back? Um, I haven't. And I was just looking it up the other day and it looked like it's a new owner now. It's still on Airbnb, yeah. but it's a little bit of a different experience. And now it's like an air mattress and bring your own linens and you oh. know, it's a little different. But which is actually yeah. interesting to study because it's the same physical space, which was the first thing that you right. described to me was the physical space. But earlier you had mentioned that the host really made that experience for you. So with a different owner slash host, the whole experience can really change. What was it like Absolutely. with that host? Were they on property? Like, how did they impact the experience for you? Yeah, she was on property. So this was basically an accessory dwelling unit. There was like, I remember, you know, walking down the trail to the outhouse, you could sort of like peek over and see her garden and just like, you know, we waved to each other, but we didn't really interact. Um, but there was a lot of communication, you know, beforehand. And um, you know, she was really just like interested and supportive of what I was doing and, you know. Um, she left me this handwritten note with like, you should go check out this trail or here's like a secret waterfall that, you know, not everyone knows about. And, you know, just those like little extras that make it so special. And, you know, like a mason jar of flowers from her garden and the bed was like made up just so nicely. You know what I mean? Like really nice sheets and everything. And yeah. It's like all the small things that one, make it different from a hotel and two, show how much she really cared about the experience that you were having. Okay. What about like big picture, all the cabins that you went to? But first it's interesting because this started a long time ago. And I was thinking when I read your pre-interview that like some of the dates you were saying Airbnb was new. It certainly didn't have like 
cabin searches. It certainly wasn't recommending the best places to stay. So how are you finding these cabins when you and your husband were traveling? A lot of it was like in the Adirondacks, there was pre-Airbnb, there's something called Adirondack by owner, which was like this super old school, almost like Craigslist, like, you know, 10 minutes to load the web page. But we would just, (laughs) we would just comb through that. And, you know, usually there's like one photo and you're like, all right, let's try this. And, you know, a lot of the times they were like better than the photos. And then, you know, there's those times where it's like, oh yeah, they clearly cropped that out very conveniently yeah. or yeah. Was there anything that you saw consistently that you loved like common big picture takeaways that you applied when you first started thinking about renting your place? And then I want to get into the history of, of your specific place. I think it's it's really just about the communication and, you know, whether it's a host or like a property manager, like that didn't really make a difference um, it was just, there was a, you know, the great experiences had a lot of communication upfront and just some like interest and like trying to recommend something for you, whether it's a hike or a restaurant or something specific to you and why you're visiting. Um, we stayed in this cabin in the Adirondacks that was absolutely lovely. It was like an old ice house that had been converted into a cabin and it was beautiful but, um, you know, a couple things like when we got there, you could tell, I mean, it was, it was clean, but like it had probably been cleaned like weeks ago and no one no. had been there since. Uh-huh. So there's like, you know, just the spider webs everywhere and like all the things like falling all over the like white bedding. And it's yeah. just like, oh, not what you want to be feeling it by. Yeah. And then the host had made a really big deal about this professional range. Like she was like, you should roast a chicken. It's like this amazing thing. I was like, all right, I'm not going to roast a chicken, but sure. We'll cook a nice meal, you know? And we couldn't get it to light. It just would not, it would not start. And, you know, we called the property manager person and they didn't get back to us that night. So that was like, you know, you built this amenity up really high and we kind of altered our plans to like, okay, we'll take advantage and we'll cook a nice meal. And then we couldn't do it. (laughs) Did you find out what had happened? Was it like broken or... I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, don't, what know, a bummer. We were just there for two nights, so yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so I feel like expectations <laughs> is a big part of it because the first one you were saying your expectations were low. This is going to be rustic, and then they absolutely exceeded yeah. them. And with the second one, mm-hmm. they like really hyped it up, and then didn't meet that expectation, <laughs> and it almost feels worse than if you just hadn't planned on it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, so take us to your place. Tell us the story of, because it started with your farm, right? When did that start for you and your husband? Like, take us back to the very beginning, what that origin story looks like. Yeah. So we started the farm around 2013 and um, we were growing cut flowers. We were one of only a handful of farms in Vermont, certainly, and in, you know, all of the Northeast that were, you know, growing cut flowers, number one, organically and Number two, for the purpose of trying to like elevate options for weddings. Um, mm. it, it started with when we were getting married and I wanted to source local flowers and every florist I talked to was like, no, you no, we don't we don't really buy local flowers. You know, they were kind of like looking down on them as though they were a lower quality. Um, Why was uh, that? I, I don't know a lot about the industry. That? Why was that? I think at the time, what they were picturing was like things you would grow in your garden, like really bright 
colors, like really like bright yellow zinnias or like sunflowers or just these like standard varieties um, that you would have in your garden that didn't necessarily belong in a a more upscale or a nicer wedding, right? And, you know, I understood that, but at the same time, you know, I was going to the farmer's market every week and there was this amazing local flower farm and like, that's not what they were growing, you know? I mean, they grew that, but they also grew like really nice pastel colors and like these flowers I'd never seen before or heard of. And, um, you know, me being the way I am for better or worse, I was like, all right, well then we'll do our own flowers. (laughs) So we literally bought buckets of flowers from that farm and, I did. That was my introduction to floristry. Um, as you can imagine, it was, <laughs> oh man, stressful? I have some really good friends. Yeah, let's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very stressful, you know, and like having never done it before, you think, oh, how, how hard can it mm-hmm. be? It turns out it's, you know, yeah, you need some skills mm-hmm. there. Um, so anyway, that was sort of the catalyst of like, okay, there's got to be other people that feel the same way. Yeah. And, and how amazing would this be to help these farmers also, because they're going to make a lot more money selling their flowers at a wedding than, you know, at a farmer's market or whatever. Right. So that's how it started. And, um, Wait, you know, what was of the course, time farm- gap between your wedding and when you bought the land or did you already have yeah. the farm at that point? Like, like what was we that? Time yeah, there was just three years in between. Okay. So basically we, got married in 2010. We took a summer off to do a road trip around uh, the country. And then right after the cross-country road trip, we moved to Vermont and um, rented for a little bit and then bought bought our place. And so did you know, just a few years. Did you know at that point what you were going to do with it? You had an idea? Like the flower dream was alive at that point? It was it was alive. We definitely couldn't afford like traditional farmland. It was just way out of our budget. Yeah. So we were looking at places with the idea of like, could we farm this, you know, because the other great thing about flowers is you don't need nearly as much space as if you're growing vegetables. Um, You know, you can really, even like a quarter acre, you can have a business. Um, So we basically just needed like some flat open space, which, you know, sounds easy, but it's actually pretty hard to come by in a place like Vermont. So. That was our criteria. Yeah. And how early on in your marriage were you able to like afford buying that much land? How did you approach that? If you don't mind me asking and you can stop me, but like, how did you approach that from a financial perspective, from a business model perspective? Were you calculating what you could afford based on what you projected you could sell? How did you even begin thinking about that? So our property is small. It's less than six acres, which by most farm standards is like a drop in the bucket. So, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't crazy expensive. It was just our budget for a house was like around $200,000 at the time. You know, we went a little over that. But if we were looking at like traditional farmland with like 20 plus acres, it was at least double that, which was definitely not. I wasn't that into it of like trying to figure out a business that would have been way too stressful. Yeah, It was like, let's stretch ourselves a little bit and then like see how we can make some money back or make the property work for us is kind of what we've always said. Yeah. And was your plan to do this full time? Were you both working full time? And this was like, I'm going to do this on the side. Yeah. My plan, we were both working full time. I started the business while still working full time. And then I went down to four days a week at my full time job. Um, And then we had a baby in 2015, um, December, 2015. So after that, I basically didn't go back to my, my full time job. And that's when you started like running the farm full time. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. So where where did the cabin come into this? And I know that you all didn't re- like start renting it right away. So tell us the origin story of your cabin. Yeah. Yeah. So when we bought this property, right, we buy our house. We're super stoked. And um, one day my husband, you know, sort of walks out into the woods, which we had done a little bit when we looked at it, but it was winter. So we weren't like super scoping it out. And we found this spot that had a little bit of, it was like a hemlock grove. So, you know, the forest floor was very open, but it was still like lots of trees. And then there was like this little clearing that had this like little peekaboo mountain view. And we were just like, oh my God, this is beautiful. And we just, we didn't even know this was here. (laughs) You know, this is like such a bonus. And so we got the idea of like, we need to do something. Like we need to, what, how can we enjoy this? You know what I mean? Like, do we need uh, a deck out? Like, what do we need Mm -hmm. to do? And so we came up with the idea of like building some sort of structure, but we really wanted to not be enclosed. We wanted to be able to enjoy the view and like the surrounding and just like the magical feeling that it had right there. And, you know, so we're like looking, I'm just like looking all over the internet and looking in books, trying to come up with something. And like, I didn't even know what that was. All I could come up with was like a gazebo, but that didn't really, I didn't want a gazebo. And so I, I eventually, I came across this image from a man, Robert Swinburne, who's a, happens to be a Vermont architect and he had designed something called the Fern House, which was basically what we based our open air cabin off of. And so I contacted him. He made up some plans for us. I bought the plans and then showed them to my husband. And he's like, I can't read these. I'm not an architect, <laughs> you know, but, but I know how to build things and I can like just look at the picture and we can figure this out. So that was really funny. Wait, has he um, built things anyway, before? He was like, I can just wing it. It's fine. Yeah. No, he, yeah, he's worked on a crew, like building houses through high okay. school. He's, he's done all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he definitely had experience. Yeah. Um, but he didn't have the, like the technical, like didn't know how to use the software or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's like a different language. When I look at plans, I remember I bought yeah. our plans off of, from Pete, but it was like from his website originally like, before he worked on our specific cabin, I just bought one from his website. And then I looked at it and I was like, Oh, this is not going to work. I was like, I don't know what I'm looking at. I can't find the bathroom. Like what is going on? And then that's when I slid into his DMs and I was like, I'm going to need some help. (laughs) So I'm glad he had the experience. That makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. So we modified the design a little bit. We wanted to add like a little covered porch and we wanted to make the, I guess you would call it the gable ends. Maybe sorry if I'm getting this wrong, but like the peak we wanted to make that like solid just to protect it a little more from the weather and, you know, a few other alterations, but pretty close, like same idea, yeah. like basically screened side. So everything is open and a clear roof so that it's just like floating in the forest is what it feels like. I really like the clear roof because I feel like not enough people take advantage of that. And I think it's harder on a full cabin because it might not be like as yeah. durable. I don't know, but I'm looking yeah. at pictures of yours right now. And as you, like look at it, it just opens you up to everything, all the sides and the top. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Okay. So you built it just yeah. for you all. What was that process for like? Us. Yeah. Like how long did it take yeah. to build it? You know, Mike, my husband worked on it, you know, after work and like, I think maybe a couple weekends and honestly, he did almost everything himself. Um, it wasn't, it was a couple weeks. I mean, he was really like going at it. You know, we didn't have a kid yet or anything. So we had lots of energy. 
I think I came out to like hold something once and was like, how have you been doing this all by yourself? But yeah, it did not take that long. So this was one of the the hardest part was, okay. I was just going to say like digging in the, you know, digging in the ground to lay the footers, you know, that was probably the, and like he would drag a generator out there and like trying to mix concrete out in the forest was (laughs) a little challenging. Yeah. I feel like for cabins, that's a challenge for cabin builds. That's a challenge that isn't like talked about or planned for enough is just like the site work needed to even begin the building. And then if you don't want it, like ours, we set back on the land, but I remember like our build crew and the the site crew being like, are you sure you don't want to put it closer to the road? Because it's going to cost this much more to bury the cable, this much more to build a driveway. It's going to be this much harder to get all the trucks in there to like drop off the equipment and do the things. And I'm like, I know, but you you don't want a cabin on the road. You want it like on the right. land. Yeah. But that is really yeah. hard. Okay. So if this was before you had a kid then this was like one of the first projects you did on the land. Like you bought the land and this was like step one. Yeah. Okay. So this was like 2014. Yeah. Yep. So when did you start, when did it transition from something that you all loved and used? And I'm sure you had like friends and family who got to enjoy it to thinking about sharing it with others. When did that happen? Were you on the same page about it? Yeah, it was probably, you know, 2016. Our baby was born in December of 2015. So like 2016 was the first summer that, you know, we just weren't using it. And it was, it's all open and like babies want it dark when they sleep. And so we're like, definitely not, you know, we're not jeopardizing our sleep any more than we already are. (laughs) Makes so much sense. Baby out there. We had, by then the farm was also like full on, right? Because I wasn't at my other job anymore. And so it just wasn't getting any use. You know, we would have friends over occasionally, like go out there for a cocktail or something in the evening. And, you know, everyone was just like, oh my gosh, like you guys need to like do something, like share that, like just put it on Airbnb. And so that's how it started. And we thought they were all crazy. We were like, this is like, no one's going to pay to come stay here. This is like just this weird thing that we like, you know, like it's way too rustic. There's nothing else around. But anyway, so in 2017, we decided to give a shot because we really just weren't using it. And, you know, I was like, it'd be great to have some, some extra income to take the pressure off of just busting my butt farming. Right. Yeah. So that's where it started. And it was, we started just on hip camp and it was, it was pretty rustic. We literally just put a futon out there. We didn't even have an outhouse yet. We I was going to ask about a bathroom. bathroom. Every time I've seen it, I've wondered about that. Where do people go to the bathroom? Yeah. I mean, now there's an outhouse and it's like all set up. There's a shower, there's an outdoor kitchen, there's like all these things. But the, the first year, I mean, I think we charged $50, you know, and it was basically, we build it as like camping, but without a tent. Like you, you, you don't need your gear. Like you don't have to bring that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we provided linens and I think we put out like our, our Coleman camp stove for people to use and like a few things, but, but really there was a lot of things that you had to bring yourself. So it was mostly appealing to people who had camping gear and were familiar with camping, but maybe wanted to try something a little nicer. Mm-hmm. What was your interaction um, with we- guests like then? Cause this is on your property they didn't have an outhouse. Were they using your bathroom? Like it seems like there would have been a lot of interaction. There was a lot of interaction. The property was pretty busy back then. I also had um, interns that would live with us that helped me on the farm. So it was just, there was always people here. There was always things going on. 
um, basically the cabin guests and the interns, you know, we worked out like a bathroom schedule for like showers and everything. So like, okay, these hours you can have it. And these hours is for the guests. Um, yeah, it was pretty wild. You know, there was just a lot going on. And so, yeah, we met every guest. Often they would like come join us for dinner. if We were just like grilling or something or come, you know, have a beer around the campfire that night. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of interaction back then. Did both of you like that? Were you on the same? I, f- I have found in hosting, I really like hosting because I'm such an extrovert, but I have had partners. Like my first hosting experience was in a house with one of my exes and he lived there too. And he had to put a cap on how many days I was allowed to rent it. Cause he's like, I cannot have people in the house this often. How did the two of you handle that? Were there any like points of tension in that first year while you were getting used to it? Yeah, it was it was a little tricky, but we also just had the mindset of like, you know, if we want this farm to work, like this is just what we have to do, you know, and we were also, you know, we were still in our, I guess, late 20s, maybe early 30s. So I don't know, <laughs> somehow that just feels so different. It does. Um, we were just more open to it, I guess. And I had, you know, worked on other farms and been in those situations, um, through the Wolf program. And so I was kind of excited to be on the other end of that. Um, but it did get challenging. Like as our son grew into a toddler, it definitely was a lot more challenging, you know, because then it was like, I was, you know, I had to cut down the, I had to say to the cabin guests, um, you know, you can come in until, I think we ended up making it like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. because we would have people just come in at like 11 o'clock at night and then like the baby would wake up because yeah. the dog would bark. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. And so that got a little tricky for sure. Yeah. yeah. I remember I remember during COVID, I run a business and I network with a bunch of small business owners and like businesses obviously like started to panic in those first months of COVID. And one of the biggest lessons I learned through COVID, someone said, you have to think about your business like a table and your revenue streams are different legs. And if you only have one revenue stream, then something like COVID happens and you might not survive. But if you've been prepared for this by having multiple revenue streams with different products, different services, whatever, then you even even if you only have two, you're more stable than one. If you have four, you're really solid, right? And so it sounds like that's what you were building. When you decided to do this full time, it was like, okay, we have the flowers, which weren't you the first CSA in Vermont to do like CSA flowers? So there's one revenue stream. You have the weddings and then you have this rental. So during COVID, I can just imagine a world in which all of a sudden the weddings are canceled, which hurt our business. But people couldn't travel anywhere. So all of a sudden, like the Airbnb business, I bet probably skyrocketed, probably not at first, but within a couple months. And so I think you're such a good example of how those multiple revenue streams can build a really successful business. So I'm curious to hear that was back in like 2017 when you started. So you've been doing this for a while now. How did you think about that business model and stability as you grew from that first year to where you are now? Yeah. I mean, that was absolutely the inspiration. I was, you know, even though we were, we were growing just one crop, right? Like even though we grew over a hundred different varieties of flowers, flowers, cut flowers was our only crop. So I did really want to diversify that. And, you know, we tried different things like raising chickens and like, I was going to do bees for a while. And I was like, no, this is, this is just too, this is overly complicating things. And so, yes, once the you know, we started the farm stay and saw, you know, how profitable that could be. Um, It it really like 
set off a light bulb, you know, and it's like, okay, this plus weddings plus the CSA. Um, and then we added in like workshops, right? So we had like a lot more of those like value add things. Mm -hmm. And absolutely when COVID hit, it, yes, weddings went away. Every, everything, almost all of my work dried up like overnight. Yep. It was very scary. I remember that. Um, my body still remembers that. I've, I've struggled oh, with anxiety yeah. <laughs> ever since because my body is like, I know what could happen. Yeah, I, exactly. Exactly. Um, and that was the catalyst for improving the farm stay and like, okay, we need an outdoor shower. Like we need to get people out of our house, you know, because now we can't, like, it's not safe yeah. to have for, for anyone, for them or us to have people sharing our space like that. So that was kind of like, not only the kick we needed, but also like, okay, well, I have nothing else to do. So I'm just going to go all in on this mm -hmm. and see what we can actually do. Because at that point, up to that point, I mean, we might have made 10 or $15,000 a year was probably our biggest um, revenue for the farm stay, Wait, but it was also the Airbnb I was being... or from the business as a whole. No, from the Airbnb. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but it was, you know, I was just one person and, you know, I had a little bit of part-time help, but you know, you're just, you're pulled in all these different directions. Right. And so that, like, like you probably had very low overhead costs. Your husband built this in like, let's say a month or two, and then you don't have electric bills. You don't have water bills. You don't have any of that 10 to 15 K and pure profit is like pretty good. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. But then that's what made me think like, all right, well, what if we did have a shower? What if we did have a place for people to cook when it rains? What if we added something like a hot tub? What else? What else could we do here? Yeah. Yeah. I love what you wrote in your pre-interview document. You said you described creating success within a very niche offering. And I think a lot of us in the unique stay world, it isn't just, we're not just trying to create an Airbnb, right? We're trying to create like an overall experience, which is a bit of a niche market. Not as niche as yours, I think. I think you're even like more of a niche within that. How did you find in those years where you were like perfecting it? How did you find that success mm -hmm. in such a neat, like what you were offering is so different than what most people are finding yeah. on Airbnb? What do you credit to yeah. your success? So I credit a lot of it is just listening to feedback mm -hmm. and being like really sensitive to what the feedback was, even if it's not what I wanted to hear, which I think is what hangs up a lot of hosts is, you know, they get really attached to the, the experience that they want to create or what they want to use the property for, you know, and at first I really did. I wanted this like very hands-off thing, mostly because I just did not have the time. Like I was already so busy. I did not have time to to do very much. So that's why I was like, okay, here's, here's the linens and you can borrow our camp stove and like, you need to bring everything else. But the feedback pretty quickly was, you know, people would knock on our door and be like, do you have like a pot we could borrow? Or do you have some towels? We want to go to the river. Do you have this? Do you have that? And so I was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to totally change this. We're going to give you everything you need so that all you have to bring is like your food and like, I mean, that's basically it, your toiletries. And so I just flipped it and I started providing everything and charged accordingly and people loved it. Like, turns out that's what they wanted. And that's when we started getting people who maybe were always like camping curious, but 
didn't have the gear and didn't want to invest in the gear and like really weren't sure how they would feel about sleeping in a tent if it rained and you know all these things or their partner is like super outdoorsy but the other one isn't and so this is like the middle ground and so that that's where we landed and where we basically still are today it's just the like we're going to do everything we're going to do all the hard part we're going to take everything out of camping that sucks and you just get to do the fun part. I love that term camping curious. Cause when I was talking to Pete on the podcast, like two weeks ago, that was one of the things that came up. He prefers a much more rustic stay. I prefer somewhere in the middle. And I think there's a lot of, um, like, and within our partnerships, I think him and Kristen both want the same thing, but I, I wondered if there was a way to create an experience that could take people who normally would stay at a hotel and introduce them to the nature element. Because I think a lot of us that we talked to on this podcast grew up with nature or at some point in our young adult lives fell in love with it. But there are people who get to my age, 40, and haven't had that experience for whatever reason, where they live, their job, their family, whatever. And that you're creating something for people who are camping curious is like my new favorite term, right? And introducing them to that in a way that also feels, I mean, it does look, I haven't been there, but it looks like it feels luxurious at the same time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But the luxury is just, it's really simple things, but it's just, it's like that juxtaposition of like in the woods, but in a real bed, not an air mattress on the yeah. floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The one other thing you said that I think is so interesting is I totally agree with you about the feedback. And I think that's just humans in general, but I think it shows up a lot in the host community. I don't see it much in people that I talk to. I see it in the Airbnb Facebook groups is where I always see it. It's just like the resistance to feedback or complaining about guests who give feedback or like, oh, why don't my guests do this? But it sounds like to your point, Mm -hmm. not only were you able to make more money and create a better stay and have happier guests, but you were also able to make your own life easier. By by putting in a little bit of work of like installing the kitchen or the outdoor shower, you suddenly didn't have people coming into your house. You didn't have to answer a door at 9 p.m. if someone wanted to borrow a pot. You didn't have to – like it almost sounds like it was such a win-win. You listen to their feedback. They're happier. You're happier. The experience is better for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. Do you mind talking about finances? You you mentioned that you made 10 to 15 that first year. And now here we are, what, seven years later, six years later – Mm-hmm. And you've changed the experience. How did that translate in terms of that revenue stream on your farm? Yeah. So, I mean, just adding the stay when we were making that ten dollars to $15,000, like immediately bumped us. I mean, we'd been profitable, but like not very, which, you know, for farms, I'll just throw out, it's an average of usually seven years to turn a profit. No. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we became profitable in just a few years. And once we added the farm stay, it really was like, okay, I feel good about this sort of profitability situation. Um, Yeah. So then when we added all those things, and of course there was like investment, right? Because now we're like, you know, tripling the amount of structures and we went from being able to turn over the cabin in like an hour or less to now it takes three hours to do. And so all of those sort of expenses and things, of course, increase along with it. Yeah. So we added, you know, the kitchen, the shower, an outhouse was added pretty quickly after the first season. And now we have a wood burning hot tub as well. Mm. So with all those sort of structures and amenities, our nightly rate has gone from when we first started, it was about $50. And now it ranges from about $249 to $299 is sort of our peak season weekday and weekend rate. So it averages between thirty dollars and $40,000 usually per season. 
And that's a very compressed season. We have about four and a half months to rent. I was just going to point that um, out. This is not your average season. So people hearing those numbers need to understand that that's third of the year. Yes. So if you want to compare yep, that, contextualize that, multiply it by three, and that's like, to put it in context with whatever number, if you're right. renting year round, that's like what that looks like. Right. Yeah. That's like game. Yeah. And we also... It is. And I, you know, and and that is still not like completely like optimized or squeezing everything you could from it, which became really important to me post pandemic. Um, you know, because we were doing before the pandemic, especially I was still doing all of the turnovers myself. So it was like a lot of Sundays I was, that's what I was doing. You know, of course it doesn't take all day, but it's, you know, it's a lot of work. And it's like kind of in the middle of the day, which during the weekday when my son was at childcare was wonderful, but on a weekend, it, it really wasn't so great. Yeah. Um, so one thing we've done is, you know, we have cleaning help now. And one of the ways that I like to try to take care of our cleaners and to also attract them is to say, you don't ever have to do a turnover on a weekend or a holiday. So Some holidays those? we, you know, I'll say like, do you want one? What's that? Do you do those or who does that? Or do you just not allow? No, we just... We just don't allow a check-in on a Sunday. Okay. Um, and so I, we, we take a little bit, you know, like that that probably hurts our bottom line a little bit, but it's just one of those decisions that we've made for like yeah. everyone's health, peace of mind, whatever you want to yeah. call it, work-life balance. Yeah. That's so interesting because I've never heard of someone doing that. And I do think as a business owner for my full-time job, I'm always thinking about how do I run a more human-centered business because it is really hard. You're thinking about revenue and profits all the time. In a small business, the margins can be small. So you have to pay attention to all of that. And sometimes those decisions are not easy decisions to make. And I love that you've gotten kind of creative with what it is, right? Like, Because you could pay people more to make it worth their time or other ways mm-hmm. that you can add those benefits is like, listen, I care about you. You shouldn't have to do this on a weekend or on a holiday. And that's how we're going to show you that. Are there any other, because you mentioned in your pre-interview that you think a lot about being profitable in a non-corporate minded way, which is basically what I call like human-centered businesses is, is focusing on the humans first. What are other ways that you think about this and it shows up in the way you run your business? So that's definitely a big one. Let me think. We, you know, we've always paid a quote unquote living wage to our cleaning crew. And granted, it is, it's, it's more, it's a lot of work. You're, you're outside. I mean, we are sometimes out there in the pouring rain doing a turnover and that's awful. Yeah. (laughs) And so I want people to be compensated accordingly for that. And I don't want to burn people out. I don't want to, you know, I want people to come back every season. And so far for the past, I think three years now, um, that's what we've had. So that to me is an indication of like, okay, we're doing this right. I also ask for their feedback all the time. Like I very much, here's your checklist. Here's the flow that I suggest. But like you, as long as it gets done, like I don't care what order you do it in, you know, and if you think of a way that this could be done more efficiently, or if you think I'm like being too extra on something, like, please tell me because I might be, Yeah, (laughs) you know, so just welcoming that feedback and yeah, just really understanding that people are human and also just having enough cleaners. Like I think last year we had, it was the first time that we had really wanted to like, I didn't really want to have to do any of the cleans because I wanted to be around for my son more. He's getting a little older. Um, And so we, I think we had four cleaners and that was like a little too much. You know, I was like, really, 
you know, going, I was a little extra in that department. How do you so manage that? We had two. Just logistically, how did, when you had four, for someone who, cause like I've only had one cleaner and then I've paid them in some cases a little bit extra if I didn't have to worry about the backup. Like if you find a backup cleaner, you train them, I don't right. have to worry about it. Then I will pay you extra every single clean for taking on that kind of work. How did you manage right. having four and how much work each one wanted and who got what cleaning? Like, did you have a system for that? Yeah, it was tricky. I mean, I basically said, you know, when I was interviewing them, like, how how much, how often do you want to do this? Like, we usually have three to four turnovers a week. So you could have as many or as little as you want. And I would really just be, okay, you want one a week, or you want two a week, or you want as many as possible, or you have, you know, I have one person that can only do Mondays, which is fine. There's pretty much always a Monday clean. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot to kind of go with that and figure that out. But I think that's the magic of having a good relationship and keeping people happy so that they come back the next season. And by then it's just like smooth sailing. Like this season was just easy um, because I had the two people who cleaned the most pretty much um, stayed on. And I mean, it was tricky. They both also wanted to um, take time off at the same time, which again, I'm never going to be a person that says like, no, because I've had that done to me in so many corporate environments that I just will never do that. Yeah. So if you plan your vacation and you just tell me when you're not going to be right. here and it's my job to figure it That's out, right. it's not on you. You know, These are also private contractors. These aren't employees, That's right. you know, so I'm going to treat them as such. Yeah. Um, and so I did, you know, I did a lot of cleaning um, for a few weeks and it, it was hard, but um, that's just, it's just part yeah. of it. And yes, I could have had one of those backup people and, and done it that way. But I also, because again, I'm on the property, it's manageable for me and I really value, just like you visit your property quite a bit. Like I want to be in there and I want to, cause I'm going to notice like little things like, Ooh, this needs to be painted. This, this is a little loose and we got to do something about that, that they're not necessarily going to find every time they're just turning over. So I value it for that reason also. Like I'll complain about it a little bit in my head, like, Oh, I have to do the turnover today. And then I have to do this and this and this, but it's, it's like so valuable to just be in there with your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I will admit I have a very bad attention to detail when it comes to cleaning. So I I cleaned my cabin twice in the first years, like back in like 2016. Cause I was like up there, I think it was after my own stay. And I was like, oh, the cleaner doesn't need to come. Like I'll take care of it or whatever. And those were like early years, the only two reviews we ever got where they commented on the cleanliness as not good. <laughs> and I was like, this is and I knew it like my own house isn't that clean. I was like, okay, this will have to be something that I always outsource. <laughs> Yeah, it's just yeah. My problem is I take too long. I'll like, like fuss with things, and then it's like, oh, they do this in like two and a half hours, and it's taking me four hours because yeah. I just can't stop myself. Yeah. Okay, I want to transition a little bit because I know that your cabin has been given a bunch of different awards, like number one most liked on Airbnb, top ten most wish list stays. I'm sure I'm missing some. But that obviously, so your success, I'm sure some of that is like, it is beautiful. So on Airbnb, I'm sure it does well. But what else have you done to find your people? I often think of it, not sell your cabin, but to find the people who this stay is really a good fit for. How do you think about that holistically in terms of how you're finding your people? Yeah, um, honestly, it's, I think a lot about myself when my husband and I were younger, um, before we were married and we were traveling around. And it is sort of a, 
for better or for worse, our stay has become sort of this sort of bucket list um, stay now. It is like I completely recognize like people spend a lot of money to stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, the nature of it also is such that it's not really great for dogs. So like, unfortunately, we can't allow dogs. And um, so then, you know, a lot of times I have to get like a dog sitter too. Yeah, And yeah. it's it's one, it's basically for a couple, you know what I mean? So like, sometimes I have to then need the babysitter. So like, I just fully recognize like how much effort goes into this. And I just really want to take care of people from, through communication, through recommendations. And just, that was like a huge push for us to get the hot tub to like, really make it so that you can stay here. And like, maybe you don't even like go anywhere. Yeah. And honestly, we have a lot of people that do that. They'll ask like, what are the best hikes? Where should we have dinner? Like, where should we do all these things? And then like they come and like their car never leaves until they check out. Yeah. And we consider that like the highest compliment. Right. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's kind of what it's about. Yeah. It's like, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, it would be cool. Like I need to like slow down. I need to go off the grid or whatever, but it's not until they really get here that they like really realize how much they needed it. And they're like, not afraid to embrace that, I guess. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not afraid to just like wipe all the plans that they had off their itinerary. And they're just going to like read and soak in the hot tub and build a campfire and like, just chill, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So is that, do you hear from them how they're finding you for this? Is it typically through Airbnb? Is it typically through Instagram? Is it like, where are they finding you? It's a little bit of a mix. Instagram is um, really big for people finding us. Um, We also have a mailing list and email list that I started during, during the pandemic actually, because um, we were so booked up that I had to start a wait list for the first time ever. So I started collecting emails that way. And so that has grown over the last few years. And so now I really try to take care of our email community and, um, you know, give some little specials or just some like extra value. And also, you know, they're going to get first notice when we open dates Mm -hmm. or um, things like that. And so that's how our, we do get repeat guests. Like we don't have a ton, but we do get them. And that's usually um, how they're finding us. Yeah. Okay. So I spent a little bit of time on your Instagram and it's beautiful. And one of the most often questions I get is about influencers and other content. And I've noticed, I've seen some familiar faces on yours. So I know that you've at least used some photographers. What What is your strategy yeah. been for that? When you think about hiring photographers, how often do you do it? Do you budget for it? How do you think about that strategically? Yeah. I will say that when we you know, we didn't have professional photos at first and I hate to tell everyone this, but you can scroll all the way back and look. I'm doing it right <laughs> now. I'm literally scrolling down to see how it's changed. Like, yeah. And just what it used to look like with just a futon in there and everything. I don't know. Maybe it was 2018 was the first time I had some people start to reach out, some influencers and like, sure, we would do like a trade and like the, the, the photos, they were fine. They were great. You know, I was grateful to have them. But I definitely, and then this this guy named Ethan Abbotts reached out to us. <laughs> and Good so I Ethan. looked at his photos and I was like, damn, yes, this is all right. And honestly, it was when he, his first visit and seeing his photos, I just, I, I probably literally cried when I looked at the photos because it was the first time someone had captured what it really feels like to be here in a photo. That was how like, I, found I didn't you. It was know that Ethan. that was possible, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And so that was when I was like, okay, 
photos have tremendous value Mm -hmm. and, but it is all about finding the right photographer, the right influencer, whatever. And honestly, you know, I have, I'm sure you do too. I have a ton of people that reach out and I, I just, I work with like maybe two, maybe three a season, but I usually budget for two. So, well, Ethan basically is on retainer. So he comes every, (laughs) at least once a year because I just love his work so much. And then, you know, I'm really just, I'm looking at their work. Like, obviously that is a big part of it for me, but then also it's, there's so much in the communication and how people reach out and like, um, you know, it's very easy to tell if this is just like a boilerplate folks are just looking for, you know, a stay and maybe to do their own work, which I completely recognize and support mm-hmm. while they're here. But I don't know, like, I'm going to ask a few questions and I'm going to engage in a dialogue. And really, I'm just seeing like, I don't know, just trying to feel it out. I, it's It's hard to even put into words. It's just like a feeling of like, and also just trying to qualify them. Cause a lot of times I'll look at the page of these people that reach out and I'm like, you've never stayed at a place like this before. Right. Like, do you know what you're getting into? Right. Do you know how to capture and, it? That is the value of Ethan yeah. is he does almost exclusive. I mean, he does commercial work and stuff too, but yes. he has done so much right. of this that he has the experience right. from every other property, but also he understands the marketing. So he knows what kind of photos are going to perform really well. And like, he has a ton of experience right. in this niche. Yes. Yeah. So it's tricky. Short answer is yes. I budget for about two a season. And then I do also, I have like a soft spot for, you know, people who are just starting out. And if they're like really trying to make a go of it, like you can really tell, like they're trying to give you like all the things mm-hmm. and it's just like, whoa, 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 you don't have to do that much. Like, <laughs> But this, like, this is a know. good question though. So I was actually on the photographer mindset podcast. We recorded it like two days ago and they asked a ton of questions because their audience is all photographers trying to get into this space. So they were asking tons of questions about what's the best way to pitch? How do we get you to pay attention to our DM? So this is really interesting to me. What do you expect in those two that you invest in a year? Because what I said I expect is not what they were used to deliver. Like it felt like there was a disconnect there between what they think they should deliver and what I expect. And I don't know who's right or wrong or it's somewhere in the middle. And honestly, I don't think there is a right or wrong. I think it's fit. What do you expect? When you hire someone, what are you hoping to get? I would say for us, our primary growth or our primary goal right now is growth. So if you are brand new and you have a couple thousand or less followers and you don't have an email list and like, you know, like, sure, let's do a trade. Like, I'm happy to to try to work those in and bonus if you are flexible and you can get here for like a, a Tuesday night. You know what I mean? If you're like regional. Yep. Um, so I'm happy to do that. But if you if I'm going to be hiring you. Um, you know, I don't have a specific number in mind for followers, but I would say if I had to pick a number, it would be at least 10,000, right? Um, bonus, if you have an email list bonus, if you have Instagram and TikTok, bonus, if you're going to do not just photos, but also some video, I, I don't really like making reels myself. So it's like a bonus if someone wants to make me a reel because I just don't, well, just don't have the patience for it yet. Um, Yeah. I like that yet. So, and then, you know, yeah. And if they want to like give me the stats on their, their page and everything, like, that's great. That's helpful. Like I know what those metrics kind of should look like. Um, But to me, that just shows also that like, okay, they are paying attention Mm -hmm. enough to know. Yeah. And so, yeah, they should have an audience that's like dialed in also, you know, either within outdoors or, you know, I, I get a lot of 
people who are just like general travel and a lot of them are visiting cities and it's just, it's like, your work is great. I just, you're just not the best fit for us. I just, and also I just, you know, they're like, you're sleeping outside. Like, do you, you understand that? Right. Cause like you, you're in this pretty white flowy dress and all these photos. And like, I just want to make sure that also, like, I don't want you to have a bad time. Like work should be fun for you, you know? Um, so I really just try to qualify people in that regard also, because then if they're going to share it with their audience, like, is that aligned? Right? That's right. Like, that's what I always recommend like I, when I'm talking to folks about this is like when you're looking at influencers or photographers and they have a big following, it doesn't matter if they have 500,000 followers, if they're all folks who don't like being outside, you know, like that yes, is not going to translate exactly. for you. And if they have 5,000 followers who are like New England cabin lovers, cool. Like I am down for that because those are my people, right? Like, exactly. yeah. And looking at their profile can tell you a lot about their people because anyone who pays attention to Instagram knows what their people like. And so posts a lot of that. So whatever they're posting a lot of is what their people like. And so that gives you information about who they're talking to. Exactly. And if you go to Ethan's, you're going to see all cabin, right? So you like, no, this is what his people care about, being outside, discovering new cabins. Yeah. What are your plans for the future? You've grown this business Mm -hmm. and adjusted it and taken feedback so much over the years that you've been in business. And so I'm curious, there's got to be something that you have in mind about what's next. Totally. So we we do have plans for the future. Um, we spent a lot of time thinking about because, of course, when we were successful, like everyone from like friends to like my business coach are like, you need to build another one, like put something else on your property. And that just it never really felt aligned for us. We knew that we were going to really compromise either our enjoyment of our property, the guest experience, like it just felt like too risky. Yeah. So we did get really lucky. There's this property just a couple miles from here that we drove by all the time. It was like this awful, dilapidated, abandoned cabin. That's just for as long as we've lived here over 10 years, like we've never seen a person there. And, you know, I'm always, every time we drive by, we'd be like, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to send them a letter. Like we should, and this is like out of no, like I had no business saying these things, right? So anyway, fast forward to 2020, suddenly that place just pops up on the market. The asking price was like completely out of touch, out of reality for anything we could ever afford. For a dilapidated um, cabin? Was, yeah. How much land was it on? But it's like, it was a little over two acres, but it was the height of the real estate craziness. Yeah. And my, my husband's a realtor. And so it was just like, somebody's somebody from not here is going to buy that just for the land, probably. You know mm. what I mean? I think they were asking like around $80,000 okay. for it. Okay. That doesn't feel and that so crazy anyway, to me. No, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not that crazy, but for like where we were, like just going through the pandemic of like, I basically lost all my work and my husband also had to transition. So it was like, we had no business even thinking about like the timing just seemed like terrible. Right. Yes. But anyway, long story short, like we looked at it and we made what was a low ball offer, but, um, we were like really confident, like you know, I would not pay a dime over this, you know, and they can take it or leave it. Yeah. And they left it. Um, but then a few weeks later, they came back <laughs> and right. uh, we got it. We got the property. Um, so the original plan was we, I really wanted to try to save it. Yeah. And we had, you know, lots of people look at it and pretty much all the opinions were like, you just, you got to start over. So, um, so anyway, we um, have, you know, 
got rid of, we took down the old cabin and we have all the site work done. And as you know, how <laughs> expensive and time consuming yes. that is. So we are building something else and, and how this fits in, because this is one of my passions is like thinking outside the box and like, I'm not a person that can necessarily just dump all my resources there without it. Like it always has to like check two boxes for me. Yeah. Right. And so the plan is we'll build something that can be rented, probably short term, maybe even midterm. It's, it's going to be small. It's going to be under a thousand square feet. Hopefully that'll be like the next property for my husband and I to move to mm. when our kiddo is grown. Because right now, like we love the property we're on, but it's a farm and it, the maintenance is insane and I don't want to do it forever. Yeah. <laughs> like That's not my plan. Yeah. So that's like how we can kind of make it work is like, okay, this is like, you know, this is a real estate investment. This is business. And this is like our future yes. and like our next step. Yes. Along with that, my other project I'm sort of working on is again, always listening to that feedback is we've had a lot of requests for solo stays. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, just our property with the maintenance and everything that it is now, it's really hard to, to lower our rate very much to make that attractive to just one person. And that the budget that usually comes along with it. So I'm trying to figure out how to meet that. And I have some ideas. And I guess I won't say too much now, but maybe we'll have something else to talk about in a year or so. I love that. I love how intentional yeah. you are about this because I've I've been thinking about this so much recently. The like when you're in this world, it is so fun working with guests, like hosting guests, and the creative aspect of it is so fun. But then scaling isn't always good for everything, right? Like to do it in a human community-minded way is just challenging. And it sounds like every step you've made, you've really paused to think, how will this impact us? How will this impact the guest experience? How will this impact our community? And then made really smart strategic decisions with all of those things in mind. Thank you. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's really beautiful yeah. to watch that it can, it can be done. It doesn't have to be huge yeah. to be wildly successful and being one of the top 10 most wishlisted properties on Airbnb. Like you've just, you've really shown what's possible, I think, to do it in a really non-corporate minded way in your words, which I really like. Yeah. Yeah. Melissa, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was so fun for me to put a face and a story behind a cabin that I've definitely seen a lot on Instagram uh, and learning awesome. more about thank it. Thank you, Janet. Yeah. This was such a treat to be here. I'm so excited. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you liked what you heard, feel free to leave us a five-star rating on Spotify or share some of your favorite parts over on Apple Podcast. If you have feedback or suggestions for the future, you can also find me on Instagram at Cozy Rock Cabin. Looking forward to next week.